Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with Curtis L. Fox about his book, Hybrid Warfare, The Russian Approach to Strategic Competition and Conventional Military Conflict, that was published by 30 Press Publishing in 2023. Curtis L. Fox is a former Green Beret and served as a demolitions and combat engineering expert on a Special Foreign Operations Detachment, Alpha, as well as other operational duties and missions. He separated from the Army in 2016 to attend the MBA program at Georgetown before re-entering public service in the Department of Defense. Curtis L. Fox, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, thank you for very much for having me here. We always like to begin our uh, interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind writing this book? Well, the the short answer is uh, I'm a project engineer. Um, I I started at Virginia Tech um, and I actually chose to enlist in the Army and I went to a 10th Special Forces group eventually. Uh, where, uh, you know, there was a 10th Special Forces group. If you were to look back in history, um, was the special forces group uh, that was responsible for going underground in the event of a Soviet invasion of Europe. And they were responsible for uh, coming up after the Soviet lines had passed, uh, you know, West Germany. Uh, and they were responsible for uh, coming up and uh, damaging Soviet supply lines, railroads, uh, infrastructure in order to frustrate their continued advance into France. And so there's a uh, there's a need in tenth group to really understand Russia, um, you know, as our longtime Cold World, Cold War adversary. And I actually studied Russian language for uh, some months. Uh, and then, you know, when I got out of the service, I actually went to Georgetown University to work on my MBA. And when I got out, I was looking for a project. And uh, <laughs> I I started reading into the different units that had conducted the annexation of Crimea in 2014. And the more I kind of peeled the onion on that, the sweeter it started to smell. You know what I mean? And uh, it was a really, really interesting topic to kind of understand the mechanics of how the Russian system worked. And the, the more the project grew, the more the project grew. Now, what kind of sources were you able to utilize for this book? Because I did see a, a very interesting uh, mix of sources being cited uh, while reading the book. Uh, and, you know, this is probably a good time to, to front load by saying all opinions are, of course, my own and not the opinions of the United States government or the Department of Defense. Um, <clears throat> but, yes, I uh, I. I did a lot of research in a lot of unusual places. Um, I talked to a, a large number of colleagues who pointed me to the right, to the right places in U S army war college, um, or, you know, publications out of the Rand corporation. Um, there are all sorts of think tanks and journals that push a lot of this stuff out. Um, I really have to tip my cat to, uh, to Mark Galliotti, uh, you know, as, as one of the real experts on Russia, um, and of course, there's I, I could go down a litany of, of individuals who have really done the heavy lifting on the research here. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, there are all sorts of unusual places where I kicked over rocks and it was a fun process. Now, there has been a lot of debate over what exactly hybrid warfare <clears throat> is. Now, for the purposes of your book, what is your definition of hybrid warfare as a concept? 
Uh, well, and you know, the, the title gives it away. Um, it, it is a Russian, it's a uniquely Russian way of warfare, but we really should conceptualize it as conventional warfare. Um, what the Russians are doing is using a holistic approach or maybe a, let's say a whole of government approach to a military intervention. Um, they're leveraging all means of national power to, to achieve an end state. Um, and then they're executing a series of very well-planned preparatory activities, activities that, you know, they would be considered best practice in most other militaries. But um, it's a rapid insertion of, uh, you know, let's say intelligence operatives to create chaos in the battle space um, and then special operations forces to take advantage of those of, of that chaos um, and to frustrate the host nation government from being able to respond. Uh, and then. Once they have a toehold, it's the job of, uh, you know, elite ground forces uh, or perhaps the VDV to surge in rapidly and uh, turn that 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 small foothold into a permanent entrenchment. And once those once those forces are in place, there's no undoing the Russian position. And uh, that, in a nutshell, is hybrid warfare. Um, there are some core differences between anything that we might do in, in uh, the Western world. Uh, but it looks a lot like conventional warfare, um, maybe, maybe executed very rapidly and with more than a little guile. Um, and that, that is the Russian way of conventional war. Um, and I think what we have to <clears throat> kind of come to terms with is that the United States is really the only country in the world that would tell an adversary ahead of time that we plan on invading. Um, and that's really because our our strategic overmatch is so enormous. Um, the the advancement of our ground forces and is so overwhelming um, that we you know they we we can afford to let them know ahead of time what's about to happen if they don't comply. Um, and the Russians don't live in that world. They they have to utilize the element of surprise to the fullest extent possible. Now, what are some of the origins of hybrid warfare as a uh, concept? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, and I think if you broke hybrid warfare down into all of its constituent pieces, <clears throat> you'd have to, you'd probably realize that it has been a Russian practice dating back before communism. Um, this is a, you know, the Russians are pursuing a grand strategy of security through expansion until they anchor their geographic barriers or let's say until they anchor their political boundaries against hard geographic barriers it's like the the black sea the carpathian mountains the baltic sea the caucasus mountains the gobi desert and in between those hard geographic boundaries uh they can station static security forces that are meant to preserve the border um, and that gives them a degree of security well, ever since the Rus' ethnicity emerged in the 8th century, they've been pursuing that same strategy of expansion, just kind of conquering, uh, you know, neighboring tribes and clans and so forth. Um, Peter the Great really articulates the Russian strategy well. Catherine the Great understands what Peter has done before her, and she does it just as well, if not better. Um, and it's the same strategy that Lenin falls in on after after uh, communism takes over. Um, and so in, in, if you're pursuing that grand strategy and you've got limited means at your disposal to achieve those 
to just to you know tactically achieve vital objectives in pursuit of those strategic goals, um, then a practice like hybrid warfare starts to become fairly obvious, um, even to you know even to czarist Russia. Um, we can see uh, we can see hybridish type actions done by the Soviet Union, especially in places like Angola. Um, or, uh, you know, modern day Namibia, uh, you know, uh, or, or uh, you know, what was Rhodesia and is now Zimbabwe. Um, you know, they, they were all over the continent conducting, uh, you know, offering support, technical and, and uh, let's say special operations support for, for pretty much anybody who would raise their hand and say, hey, we're pseudo socialist and we don't like the United States. We'll, we'll work with you. We'll vote with you at the U.N. Um, and, you know, in that kind of an environment, um, hybrid tactics are very useful because they insulate the political leadership from, uh, from uh, you know, excessive backlash, especially on the diplomatic and economic side. Um, hybrid warfare does a very good job, if properly executed, hybrid warfare does a very good job of recognizing that military activity has to achieve political goals. And I would say that's that's something that the Russians recognize a little bit better than most. Is this kind of why the Russian leadership has adopted hybrid warfare as a strategy? Yes, um, I, I would I would say that's part of it. The the other part of it, uh, let's say there was a the, the Soviet way of warfare. Um, you know, the uh, was uh, let's build mass tank armies, um, and we're gonna we're gonna have more tanks than you could possibly imagine. Um, and out of all of these armored personnel carriers are going to be an, an enormous volume of soldiers that all have AK-47 rifles and the overwhelming firepower of this force moving forward and thundering through the fold of gap is going to be more than any adversary could could ever face down. So uh, to give you an idea of scale, the United States had maybe 90 divisions at the end of World War II, 90 army divisions plus, uh, you know, I... Uh, I want to say seven to 10 Marine divisions, maybe um, the Soviets raised something like 300 divisions and, and, you know, so, and that entire force was in the European theater. Um, and so the, the, the enormity of, of Soviet, Soviet overmatch and ground forces uh, is really hard to comprehend. Um Matthew Ridgway, General Matthew Ridgway, you know, the guy that saved U.S. forces in Korea when he took command of 8th Army. Before he was given that post, he wrote a paper in the Pentagon um, simply stating uh, what we now take for granted as an obvious fact is that because of the nuclear age, no one's ever going to risk waging large scale conventional wars, at least not not between the great industrialized powers, um, because it, the likelihood that 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 war will escalate into a general nuclear exchange is too great. So limited military interventions, especially ones that are waged in the periphery, are going to be the way that people move the ball forward politically. And that was certainly the case during the Cold War, which seems to have dictated the Russian or the Soviet, the Soviet practice to a certain extent. And it certainly dictated the American practice. And, um, but the difference between now and pre-1991 is that in pre-1991, the Soviets actually had the resources to pursue a large-scaling invasion of, of a neighboring country if they wanted to. Um, you can see how that's working out for Russia in the present. Um, 
but uh, post-1991, they went from being arguably the second largest economy to, in the world to the Russian economy itself by like 1994 was maybe half the size of the United Kingdom. And that little economy was trying to prop up a military that was designed to face down all of the NATO alliance. It just it's, it's not possible to maintain that in any way. Um, and so, and the first and second Chechen wars really revealed to the Russians exactly how much their, their security capacity or their, their capacity to project military force had deteriorated. Uh, and that's, that's really where the modern hybrid warfare practice comes from. And that's where I really point in chapter one to the origin. Uh, and the, you know, the, the second Chechen war in particular was in the world's living rooms. Everybody watched that on TV and they were kind of shocked and horrified at it. Um, especially the raising of Grozny. And, uh, so the, the Russians realized in the next interventions that they conducted, the big one being the Russo Georgian war in 2008, <clears throat> that they needed to use limited force. It needed to be a very short duration campaign and they needed to control public perceptions of the narrative. And so, and I, I go into grave detail about this in chapter three about the, the intimate way in which they kind of baited and lured Georgia into that war, um, you know, by establishing, uh, you know, these autonomous republics of South Ossetia and Abkhazia uh, and then, you know, harassing and poking uh, the government uh, in Georgia to to respond uh, to, you know, what was basically a separatist threat. Um, and and uh, the, the, the results of that first hybrid war were, were I mean, it speaks for themselves. Uh, heavy combat operations lasted for maybe five days. The whole thing was maybe two weeks. Um, and it was a lopsided Russian victory. And it, it was a real success, and they found a new formula to move forward other than Georgi Zhukov's massive tank armies. That was oh, not what? a short answer to your question. No, no, no. You're, you're doing fine. Uh, feel, free, feel free to elaborate on your on your answers. Uh, now, one a principal figure who features a lot in discussions of hybrid warfare and particularly Russian practices is the figure of Valery Gorosov. What is his significance to the development of hybrid warfare? So, it, Valery Grasmov is a very interesting character, um, but I think we should see him much more as a conventional general rather than the progenitor of hybrid warfare. Um, the practice certainly pre-existed him, and you can see the Soviet era for that. Um, he was not the chief of the general staff during the Russo-Georgian War, um, and he had not, you know, we we've... Uh, I've heard lots of people throw out the term the Gerasimov Doctrine and, you know, the, the first hybrid war of the 20th century, if, if we're calling that Georgia, that was fought largely without his participation or input. And he had not had any real influence on Russian military theory by that point. The reason so many people associate Gerasimov to the to hybrid warfare is because he did an interview for the the Russian call it the military industrial courier Um and, and uh, you know, this is a defense journal, kind of like uh, the Military Times uh, in the United States. And he he spoke relatively abstractly uh, in the interview about uh, how uh, future wars uh, in future wars, um, the sum total combat power and economic power of the belligerents would not really be the determinant factor in the war. And he points to the Korean War, to the Vietnam War, 
uh, to the ongoing wars in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time as evidence that, uh, uh, you know, just because, uh, you know, let's, let's say the United States in each of those conflicts was, uh, you know, militarily and, and uh, economically and politically superior and technologically superior to those adversaries, but that wasn't the determining factor about the outcome. Uh, regarding the outcome of the wars and that's what he was saying and and you know quite frankly he was absolutely right um and we've kind of taken that in the western media uh you know as this you know as this uh admission of guilt so to speak that you know that's the guy he's the one that did this he's the one that came up with all this stuff and it's not it it's always existed in russian practice in some form or another um, but, uh, you know, he, he is a leading mind in the Russian military establishment is, re- is responsible in, in a number of ways of exhibiting his, uh, academic bona fides, um, before he takes a high position and, uh, you know, writing those articles was part of his professional development before he eventually became chief of the general staff. Now, another principal figure of course is, uh, Vladimir Putin, who has largely been the leader of Russia for the past well, literally 24 years. And how did his rise to power influence the impact of of uh, hybrid warfare? Especially since even when he first came to power, there was always this general sense that Putin was trying to, you know, make sure Russia was once again a resurgent global power. You know, it recovered some of its status from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Sure. Um, and yeah, he you're you're absolutely right. He does very much wear the term, um, you know, when we think of, uh, you know, Russian political intrigue and guile, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's the first person to come to mind. Um, again, the practice really pre- pre-existed him. Um, Putin is an interesting character for a number of reasons. Uh, he was a mid-level manager in the KGB um, in the late Soviet Union. Um, he worked in East Germany uh, as a as a Soviet intelligence officer, um, and he was. Uh, I, I've I have heard uh, some people that really know something about this in interviews say that the fact that he was stationed in East Germany probably means he wasn't particularly gifted as an intelligence officer. Um, I don't I don't know enough about the internal workings of the KGB at that time to know whether or not that was true. But it seems to make sense that the premier posts were always going to be in places like London and Washington um, and not in places like East Germany, where you already had sophisticated uh, intelligence services like the Stasi doing collection. Nevertheless, um, when the Soviet Union collapsed, he did very well for himself. Um, He ended up. Uh, coming up through the St. Petersburg uh, clique of Soloviki. Um, and I think he eventually became the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And then he made a political move to, to Moscow. Um, and he started with the original responsibility of being the guy that's responsible for overseeing the liquidation of Soviet state assets. So when the you know when the, they were nominally moving to a capitalist economy in the '90s under Boris Yeltsin, and he was the guy that, okay, we we have all of these multi-billion-dollar Soviet state assets. How do we privatize that stuff? Um, and as you can imagine, managing that process bought him an enormous amount of political influence. Um, but he became known as a discreet fixer. 
Um, he, he was the kind of guy that could fix a problem if you had a problem and he wouldn't tell anybody about it. He would let you have the credit. And uh, uh, he just asked that you remember him. And uh, that's the way you re he really moved up in the system. Uh, he was eventually appointed, uh, I think, deputy prime minister. And then he was uh, director of the FSB. And he might have been director of the FSB for six months before they told him that he was going to be prime minister. And then he might have been prime minister for, what, nine months before they, he was informed that Boris Yeltsin, for health, health reasons, had to step down. So he became acting president until he was officially elected about three months later. And his his value added to the Russian people that his campaign promise was one that I will I will give you a better standard of living, mostly by harnessing uh, energy exports, oil and natural gas um, for the good of the public. Um, and two, I will restore the the proper status of Russia in the world. Um, and, you know, to his credit, he has actually pursued those things. It's they, they he has had significant success on both fronts. Um, his failures have really come from instituting meaningful long-term reforms in the, the Soviet political establishment. And that's a longer conversation than, than your question. But um, part of restoring a great Russia has been pursuing that, restoring the capacity to pursue that, grand, that same grand strategy that I was telling you about. Um, and he's done that. He, he's he's uh, he's perhaps focused a little bit too much attention on that. He, the Russians were never really able to understand that it's a it's it doesn't have to be a, a world of competition. It can be a it can be a world where they are you know a respected great power that's trading with every other respected great power, and that that'll work in an American led system. Um, and that that's just a it's a system that they fundamentally reject. They they don't believe you know, that we would, you know, ever allow, uh, you know, a real competitor to exist in our framework and domain. And that's, that's their critique. Now, you did touch off about how with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian military kind of went into crisis, because of course, the economy couldn't support that huge infrastructure. And we saw the effects in both the wars in Chechnya, where the Russian army, especially in the first one didn't perform as well. The second one, it kind of dragged out. They did finally kind of achieve a success against Georgia, but then this was also part of a larger process of modernization for the Russian military in the 21st century. This was part of Putin's plan for making Russia a great power once again. Uh, what was this process uh, throughout the early 20th century or 21st century? forgive me, uh, for the Russian military. Sure. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it started out, it started out primitively. Um, you know, uh, pilots started discovering that they were actually allowed to expend fuel to get flight hours. They were actually allowed to put hours on an airframe. Um, soldiers found out that they had training ammo for the rifle range. Um, you know, tankers found out that they actually had fuel to practice field maneuvers. Um, to Primitively, uh, the the Russo-Georgian War revealed for the Russians, uh, you know, they thought they had instituted some fairly meaningful reforms after the second Chech after the the real heavy lifting of the second Chechen War was done, um, and so they they went in pretty confidently into Georgia, 
And Georgia revealed uh, that Russian command and control was actually pretty bad. Um, they uh, they uh, were very slow to move on objectives, uh, you know, even when it was a very short campaign against a very small country. Uh, field commanders moved very slowly to achieve their objectives. Uh, and uh, so they actually ended up taking overall command of the campaign and they handed it off to one of the airborne divisions, which kind of they have a reputation for being a much more much more competent and aggressive in combat. And they certainly get Russia's top draw of officers and troops. Uh, and so, yeah, they they handed it off to one of the airborne divisions to command from the division itself, which is fairly uh, that that's that's an unusual practice um and when the war was over they kind of came together and they said hey look like we weren't doing nearly as well as we should have done and and georgia's vastly inferior to us uh you know we were a former superpower this is a nobody country so they brought in another defense minister named Anatoly Serdyukov. Um, and Serdyukov was very much in, uh, uh, an outside hire, let's say. Um, he was kind of out of the St. Petersburg clique of Soloviki in a lot of ways. Um, he was actually a furniture salesman at one point. <laughs> and, uh, but he was really good at math. And he ended up working in the Russian tax service. Uh, and then uh, when he came on as defense minister, he set up a financial control board and that financial control board suddenly made all of the general staff, uh, you know, the staff officers, but the generals themselves, they had to justify every single ruble, every single kopiak that they spent on anything that had to go to the control board before the, those funds could be released. And so suddenly everyone had to stop embezzling money. Uh, and so, you know, uh, the units suddenly had, had uh money to kind of rebuild their barracks uh you know the 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 russian submarine fleet suddenly started getting maintenance dollars uh all these procurement programs that had been uh they'd been funding and just throwing money at for years they suddenly started to have real deliverables and the, you know they suddenly started having to fill contract orders because if they didn't um they wouldn't get paid and and uh he established a series of of uh you know let's say financial control board and and uh accountant type type uh deputy defense ministers uh that really started pushing the defense the the ministry of defense forward um so that you know the military procurement programs gpv 2020 and 2027 were a product of that innovation um and then he he did what was what everyone termed serdyukov's new look um and Serdyukov, uh, they they flipped the officer corps on its head first by doing a series of corruption purges to get rid of the the real Deadwood. Um, then they they tried to make a much more pyramidal, you know, flat pyramid as opposed to a smokestack, uh, you know, in the officer corps. Uh, they they put into place a process to kind of develop an NCO base as technical experts. They didn't want them to be junior leaders. They wanted them to be technical experts to advise the officers. Um, and they uh, they started a, a new uh, program of military education um, for the officers and uh, and several other things. Um, but they, they really started to turn this thing around uh, in the Ministry of Defense. 
And then, of course, the Magnitsky scandal happened. And Sergei Yukov was what he was, even though he was a reformer and he was doing a lot to weed out corruption in the Ministry of Defense, he was implicated in the, in the Magnitsky scandal as you know, part of the being at the top of the pyramid. Um, and uh, he would, he's the outcry about it um, forced Putin to remove him from office. Sergei Yukov, simply by simply by confronting corruption directly and, and implementing mechanisms to remove it from the institutions, uh, had made an enormous number of enemies uh, in the Ministry of Defense amongst the, the, the general staff and the and the and the Minister of Defense's office where the, they hated each other viscerally because of the way he embarrassed those generals. Uh, and so they pounced on the opportunity to get rid of him. And then uh, Sergei Shoigu was put into place and Sergei Shoigu is perhaps one of the most corrupt individuals on planet Earth. And he's done everything in his power to basically undo all the good work Sergei Yukov did. And you can see the way the, the Russian Ministry of Defense is, is performing now uh, in a war, uh, you know, after, what, a good 10 years of his tenure. Now, uh, the seizure of Crimea in 2014 is kind of given, is often presented as the massa, the major case study of hybrid warfare in practice. And is this true? How does the seizure of Crimea fit into the Russian strategy of hybrid warfare? I, I yeah, uh, Crimea was definitely the Woodstock of hybrid warfare. Um, they, that was the case where literally everything went right. Um, they, they really, they came up with a, a narrative that was appealing uh, to the people of Crimea enough to get them to uh, partially participate in the Russian intervention. Um, they, of course, uh, they had the Sevastopol naval base there, so they were able to forge station, you know, a, a lot of special operations forces on the peninsula before the campaign even kicked off. Um, and then, of course, they had the total element of surprise. No one in Kiev or, or, or you know, uh, NATO had ever really seen them execute that kind of a strategy so boldly and so quickly. Um, and, you know, the Sevastopol naval base and the Crimean Peninsula are extremely important to Russia, extremely important to Moscow, because they allow Russia to project power into the Black Sea, the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. Um, without them, uh, you're kind of crippling Russia. Um, so the, the, they did not want to take the chance that there would ever be an unfriendly government in Kiev uh, that might put that naval base in jeopardy. Uh, and so when Viktor Yanukovych was clearly becoming unpopular, they kind of doubled down on him and kept trying to rope Ukraine forcibly back into the Russian sphere of influence. Um and uh, unfortunately, every time the uh, uh, Viktor Yanukovych, when he tried to deal with Moscow, he came he came to the Ukrainian people with this proposal from Russia that we will buy out some of your sovereign debt uh, and that will give you preferred terms on your natural gas contracts. Uh, and that's somehow going to be better than potentially economically integrating with the European Union. Uh, and, the you know, the people of Ukraine went crazy about that. But there's one catch. And the catch is that the people of eastern Ukraine are largely ethnically Russian, and the eastern Ukrainian economies from the Soviet era are far more integrated with the Russian economy than than Western Ukraine or Kiev is. Um, and so those were very, you know, that was appealing for eastern Ukraine. 
and indeed for Crimea. Um, Crimea really uh, economically relies on the Russian presence in a big way. Um, and so they, they did find supporters, enough supporters to make their to make their implausible claims uh, about, you know, a, not being a part of the resistance forces, uh, you know, let's say somewhat plausible. Um, and they, they really tried to cast it as a people's movement, which, you know, of course it wasn't. It was a it was a Russian intervention. But there were enough people to participate to give them to, to give that narrative some credibility. And then their special operations forces were forward staged and they moved fast enough to 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 seize critical infrastructure and, and let's say road junctures and, and all sorts of things. And of course, the two real isthmuses, the entry points to to the peninsula um, that, uh, you know, the, there wasn't much Kiev could do about it once it was done. It was a fait accompli. And then the uh, the seizure of Crimea kick-started the war in eastern Ukraine, particularly the, the Donbass, where, as you meant, just mentioned, a lot of them are ethnically Russian, and some of them decided to create their own breakaway republics or try to join Russia or at least be in the Russian sphere of influence. So in some ways, the Russian military didn't directly intervene in that conflict, but they were kind of supporting pro-Russian forces. How does this kind of and that's just a generalization, but how does that figure into hybrid warfare strategy in Russian things? Sure. Um, so they, the Russians are kind of peculiar in how they stand up proxy forces. Um, they, they tend not to stand up proxy forces as kind of a guerrilla force that does hit and run tactics. They try to stand them up as a conventional infantry battalion and then a, a conventional infantry regiment and, uh, and then they'll attach like an artillery battalion to it. And, um, and they, I, I, and personally, I, I would say it's not a very good approach because irregular troops, even if you put them in regular formations, irregular troops almost never stand up to regulars. Um, they just, they don't have the unit cohesion to stand and fight. They're, they're too independently minded. Um, and that was certainly the case in Donbass. But what really happened was, uh, the GRU, uh, uh, who is the GRU, is the Russian Military Intelligence Service, and they're they're the they advise they work directly for the general staff. You know, the FSB and the SVR, that's their version of the FBI and the CIA. Those two institutions work directly for uh, you know the national government, but the GRU, which is their it's their it's the only intelligence service in Russia that didn't go through any transformation after the Soviet Union collapsed. It stayed largely intact and it works directly for the general staff and it's responsible for planning these things. And all of the Spetsnaz brigades, the uh, you know, the these are elite uh, reconnaissance units that that work uh, as a strategic asset for the various Russian military districts. They're all opcons to the GRU. And the GRU, uh, actually, it, uh, all of its intelligence operatives, most of them are former Spetsnaz men. Um, and they, you know, so they, they will take somebody that's been working in, uh, uh, you know, an elite Russian unit doing uh, field craft for, for years. Uh, and then they'll give him an, an, an education and in intelligence tradecraft. And then that becomes their intel operative. Those people per, have been studying how to do a uh, you know a war in Ukraine for years, and they quickly found a number a number of let's say 
uh, populist dissidents in eastern Ukraine um, that had some degree of popular support. And they would give these men a platform um, and help them kind of organize like a little local campaign. And the moment a crowd would show up for the speech, this guy would declare himself to be a people's mayor or, uh, you know, the people's governor of this oblast or something like that. Um, and, you know, that happened in dozens of little localities all over Donbass. Uh, and uh, the the two big ones are Donetsk and Luhansk, and that's where it really stuck. Uh, but they tried it in, in, you know, a dozen cities. Um, it was not particularly well coordinated, which tends to make me suspect the, the Crimean annexation went off so well. I think they were planning that for some years. I think the war in Donbass was kind of ad hoc. I think they had a general concept, but I think that they were given the order to execute the war in Donbass uh, kind of unexpected, kind of unexpectedly after the Crimean annexation went off without a hitch. And they pivoted um, to, to kind of make this happen without doing a whole lot of assessment about the kind of political figures that they were standing up. Uh, some of them were definitely more competent than others. Um, some of them, like Igor Strokov, uh, really thought that Russia was going to back him in a real way other than just, you know, giving him some guns and telling him to go have fun. Um, and, and, uh, but that wasn't the case. Uh, the goal in Donbas was to maintain leverage over Kiev. Uh, as long as there's an ongoing conflict in Ukraine, the European union will never accept Ukraine as a member. And, and that was, that was the real goal. Um, and so they they were trying to establish kind of an autonomous Republic in eastern Ukraine around Donetsk and Luhansk and some of the other major cities. And that was going to be their their leverage um, in the same way that Abkhazia and South Ossetia are in Georgia or maybe Transnistria and Moldova. Um, and uh, unfortunately for the Russian campaign, the Ukrainian army, I mean, it did take some months for them to really get a credible combat force together. But by, you know, this campaign really started in March of 2014. And by August of 2014, the Ukrainians were really knocking on the door of Donetsk. Um, and the, you know, the, the rebel commanders were kind of in the, you know, uh, let's say huddled in their command suite, um, trying to figure out what to do because they were about to be tried for treason. Um, and that's when Russia decided to conduct a conventional military intervention to restore the insurgency that they had created. Um, so in the late August of 2014, leading into the to the winter and then the early spring of 2015, uh, heavy Russian ground forces actually cross into Donbass. And those are the units that really engage the Ukrainian army uh, and drive them back in, in uh, what we might consider a heavy conventional warfare. And that really gives us a good look at what happens when a hybrid war breaks down, um, a hybrid war that's poorly executed poorly coordinated um, and doesn't successfully entrench its gains um, that is that's it breaks down into uh, you know World War one style slogging match and and we see that right now in uh, in uh, Ukraine at present now another uh, uh, case study was the Russian intervention in Syria because Syria has been in a civil war as a result of the Arab Spring uh, back in uh, 2010, 2011, I believe. And the Russians have kind of not a substantial force, but they have intervened 
quite a bit to try to prop up the Assad regime. How is this relevant to hybrid warfare strategy? So Syria is a unique case um, for a number of reasons. Uh, in the book, I adopt three terms uh, to really talk about uh Okay, what are the defining practices within hybrid warfare? And the one the Russians actually use these terms. They're maskarovka, which is it's Russian for camouflage, but it basically means that they're working through a hidden hand so that they always have a degree of plausible deniability. The second is uh, aktivnost, and aktivnost is just activity, and that's meant to be activities that prevent the host nation government from being able to crack down on the chaos that you've created in their country frustrating the police forces, frustrating the militaries, bribing politicians. Um, and then Vinyazovnost, which is surprise. And that really refers to the the rapid maneuver element and, you know, it achieves the fait accompli. And uh, Syria has, it's a hybrid-ish war, but it's not really a hybrid war because it lacks those elements. Um, they need to conduct a military intervention in order to preserve Bashar al-Assad um, as a as a regional partner. Um, Assad is the means by which Russia projects, uh, you know, a lot of influence into the Middle East. And he also will vote for them at the UN, which is, you know, the, the, that's never to be overlooked. And so they first off as the as the Syrian civil war picks up speed, they're they're moving him uh, military hardware, supplies, money. Um, to try to keep him in power, and it becomes clear that uh, that he's going to lose uh, if he doesn't get some support. And they finally decide to bring in special operations forces, uh, and they embed them on the ground uh, with Syrian units. And then they bring in the Russian Air Force, and they use the Russian Air Force to start conducting targeted bombing against uh, against uh, you know all targets opposing al Assad. Um, this is actually where uh, uh, Sorovikin, uh, General Sorovikin, they call him General Armageddon, uh, he really shows uh, the world exactly how ruthless he can be because uh, he's the guy that comes uh, with you know the mental calculus uh, of saying, well, we can attack the civil infrastructure. Uh, we could even attack residential areas. And the worst that's going to happen is that it's going to turn all those populations into refugees. Uh, the refugees will flow northward and they'll become Europe's problem or Turkey's problem. Um, and by definition, refugee, refugees don't fight. They won't fight wars. So let's make the, the population itself our target. Uh, and that, that, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty ruthless strategy. And that's, uh, that's what they adopted for some years. Um, some of it was that uh, the the Assad regime was actually feeding them a lot of their targets, but they put a lot of Spetsnaz troops on the ground, and their air force went through a policing a polishing process. They, the air force hadn't been used in a real way in Russia since uh, the the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and so Syria gave them an opportunity to to go through an iterative process of trying TTPs and ordnance and different airframes. And actually using them in a real combat environment for close air support for soft units on the ground. And then uh, coming back afterwards and saying, hey, what worked and what didn't work? Uh, and how should we guide you know, future procurement of weapon systems in order to make this function better? 
and so the, I mean they did that for a good five years um and the, uh, they certainly didn't get to a point where they were functioning at the level of a NATO air force and you can see that by how their their performance in Ukraine was um but they made they made quantum leaps forward during the Syrian campaign in terms of improving how they could use tactical air power to support forces on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, let's say Ukraine has now revealed the limits of what Russian air power can achieve. Uh, but that was really a honing process in Syria that they went through. Um, and there, so there are some hybrid tools here, but there's no hidden hand. There's no, there's no rapid maneuver of conventional forces to seize terrain. Um, and there's not really any activity going on to stop the intervention of a host nation government. There is an enormous amount of propaganda. There's, there's, uh, there's a, a sophisticated employment of special operations forces throughout the theater. Uh, the Syrian intervention for the first time in years, the Spetsnaz troops from the, uh, of the GRU got used for the mission that they were actually designed for, um, they're, they really are a cut of ahead above, you know, the rest of the Russian, you know, let's say the Russian soldiery. Um, but they're first and foremost a reconnaissance asset. Um, and they never get used that way. They always get put into heavy, you know, ground fighting and urban warfare uh, uh, because they, they won't run. They're competent and they won't, they won't run away from a fight. And uh, so, you know, in a war like Chechnya, um, you know, if you've got nobody else, you put the Spetsnaz battalion in, into the fray in a place like Grozny and let them carry the torch forward. Uh, but that's not what they're designed for. Uh, um, and Syria really gave them an, an opportunity to to do their primary mission. And we found out that they they did it pretty well when they were employed under commanders that actually understand how those units are supposed to work. Now, another significant uh, tool of plausible deniability that you have mentioned is the uh, Wagner Group and other, what we would in the West call private military companies. I believe there's a different term that the Russians uh, use because PMCs and mercenaries are technically uh, officially illegal, but we have the Wagner Group that's probably the most famous, but there are several other groups. What is their significance to the deployment of hybrid warfare for the russians yeah um man that's a so let me let me explain first that wagner group is uh they're a mercenary organization in the worst sense of the word um we use private military companies uh we use that term a lot um the vast majority of the world's private military companies everybody knows uh you know let's say blackwater for example uh, but the vast majority of the, private, of the world's private military companies are providing limited security services or they're doing logistics. Um, there's very few of them that are really weighing into heavy combat um, and doing the job of, of uh, you know, what we would what we would usually pay a uniformed soldier to do uh, in terms of ground fighting. Uh, and part of the reason for their limited use is that uh, the United Nations is it is very, very clear that, that the use of mercenaries in overt warfare is a, is a red line. They won't tolerate it. Um, the Russians 
have laws against using mercenary organizations. Uh, and the laws actually exist because for a long time, the Kremlin was very afraid that one of them might actually turn against the Kremlin. If you have a country full of very wealthy oligarchs that can throw a couple billion dollars at some some retired special forces guys, uh, that's how, you know, that's how presidential assassinations happen. And that was something that the Russians were absolutely determined to never allow. Uh Unfortunately, uh, using uniformed personnel is expensive, and especially if you want to do, you know, some in, uh, sensitive activities abroad. Let's say uh, it's really hard to make those activities non-attributable to the Russian government. Even during the Soviet era, um, you know, the KGB um, employed some of the best, uh, you know, some of the best trade crafts in the world at the time. Um, but you know, we still had a pretty good idea of where the where the KGB was and what the KGB was doing, um, you know, for most of the Cold War. So, the advantage that Wagner gave them was a, was a degree of separation. Um, you can take a soldier that did his two mandatory years of military service, and for the young man's perspective, he could go make you know six hundred six hundred and fifty dollars a month, uh, you know, which is average Russian salary. Um, working at whatever job he might be qualified for when he gets done with his two years of mandatory service. Or he could make two or three times that much money taking the skills that he learned in the Russian army and going to apply them in a place like Wagner. And Wagner would send him to uh, Libya, where he would train uh, you know, local guerrillas in how to run a surface-to-air missile system. Um, or they would send him to... Uh, you know, Central African Republic, where he would stand outside of a diamond mine with a rifle and make sure that the local warlord didn't think he could make it his. Uh, Wagner, Wagner has found all sorts of lucrative contracts like that that bring money back to Russia. They train Wagner operatives, or at least before this, before this current Russo-Ukrainian war, they were training Wagner operatives at the 10th Spetsnaz um at the 10th Spetsnaz uh, training center. Um, and they, they, they were actually co-locating these mercenaries with, you know, Russian elite troops. Uh, and then they would, you know, they would get them up to speed on whatever skill sets they might need for this particular deployment and send them out. Uh, Wagner is a great way to maintain plausible deniability. Now, in, in the current war, Russia has kind of gone further with Wagner than we ever imagined they would because they're not really running a special operations style mission or an intelligence officer mission like they were in, uh, you know, let's say the Crimean annexation and the war in Donbass. And they played an even larger part in Syria. In the current war, they're acting more like, uh, you know, let's say light infantry battalions or light infantry regiments. They call them assault detachments, which again is just basically light infantry if we can attach some support assets to them like artillery, we will. But, uh, but you know, it depends on whether or not Russia wants to grant them those assets. Uh, and so what, you know, Dmitry uh, Utkin and uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin would do is they would go to like the Russian prisons and they would say, hey, you can stay in here for the rest of your life or you can come work for Wagner for six months if you don't turn and run and you complete your six months of service, we'll commute the rest of your sentence. 
and then you know you finish however it is however long your your contract is and you're a free man you can go do what you want uh, this is a modern iteration of a strategy that the Russians have used for years. Uh, the, the Russians have never, not once in the, any of their major wars in history, started the war with a well-trained, motivated, and sophisticated army. They've always had to take egregious losses in the beginning and then put together a massive force of conscripts that are unmotivated to be there um, and most of them got torn away from their rural villages and, and told that they have to go defend the motherland this is simply the modern iteration of that strategy um, and once the you know once the prisons are emptied out they'll get a little bit more ruthless um, in who it is that they have to pull in my suspicion is that uh, they will pull in some ethnic they will pull in a larger volume of ethnic minorities around russia um, before they'll start pulling in, uh, you know, excess, excessive numbers of of Rus, ethnically Russian young men, um, you know, especially from the major cities is what it is. Now, if they did that, there'd probably be a recruitment uh, competition between them and the regular army, which is trying to do conscription uh, as well. Wouldn't that be the case? Yes, uh, it is. Um, and uh, right now, I, I, I think uh, the delineating line is that first off, to have a real position in Wagner, uh, you know, as some kind of an officer or, you know, leadership, you have to have been involved in the company for a while and you have to have a real military background. They want to, they don't just want anybody. They don't want a guy that worked as a truck driver or a vehicle mechanic. They want somebody that had a VDV, you know, infantry commander background of some kind, or they want, you know, a Spetsnaz man, uh, something like that. Uh, but Wagner is is recruiting. They'll take uh, um, people from Russian prisons. Uh, they were recruiting out of Afghanistan for a while. Um, after the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, there were a lot of, of uh, Afghan commandos and Afghan special forces uh, uh, that had been trained by the United States, uh, but they were left behind in Afghanistan. And Iran facilitated uh, their recruitment. Um, basically some, you know, some Iranian operatives would come in and tell them that there's an opportunity for them to get back into the war fighting game, uh, probably, uh, in a unit that would be staffed by a lot of men that they had already served with in Afghanistan. And so they would have some friends there that they knew, uh, and they basically got a ticket to Tehran and then a ticket from Tehran to Russia. Um, and they, Wagner recruits, uh, in, you know, in the, the Russian diaspora, um, you know, they recruit in Slavic places that, uh, you know, have a, uh, let's say, a cultural and racial connection to Russia, places like Serbia. Um, and that's, uh, you know, the, uh, the Eastern Europe is full of people that are willing to that are willing to, uh, you know, swallow kind of a, let's say, a, a nationalist narrative and, and get into the fight. And, uh, you know, some of them, some people actually join for the same reason that, you know, you might join the French Foreign Legion. You know, sometimes you just, some people have done some things and they need a new life. Now, how does the, how did the mutiny uh, that Prigozhin made back in July, how was that affecting Wagner's status uh, within the Russian military and the Russian hybrid warfare strategy? Because that kind of came as a big shock, at least to many people in the West. Yeah, as it turns out, Moscow's uh, 
nervousness about uh about mercenary organizations was not unfounded <laughs> um so in the aftermath i can go into detail on that insurrection if you're interested but in the yeah, aftermath, sure go ahead go ahead go ahead because yeah. it is very relevant to our discussion i worry i lecture too much here so you got to cut me off here when you need me when you need to um what happened effectively uh, the russian ruling class is maybe only 200 individuals um they you know we call them loosely speaking soloviki most of them were educated in in uh you know the the soviet intelligence services kgb maybe the military uh sergey lavrov was foreign service uh, but they had a very good education in the Soviet Union. They were middle-level managers during the Soviet collapse, and they've become Russia's senior statesmen. And they've done a very good job of wrestling Russia's economic oligarchs into a subservient position. You can be vastly wealthy as long as you get along with the Russian government. And the moment you decide that you're not going to play the game is the moment that you're going to accidentally get tied to a chair and pushed into a lake. Um, and so the, you know, the people that we think of as oligarchs in Russia, you know, because they're worth a couple billion dollars each, uh, are in a subservient position to these, to these intelligence apparatchiks. Um, and they're very factionalized. Um, the, the reason this, this 200 person ruling class exists is because the education system collapsed after the Soviet Union and it was never really rebuilt. So there's not an up and coming generation that can kind of help these people phase themselves into retirement. Uh, these are the people that run the Russian government because they're the only people that can. Within, those, within that system, there are multiple factions and... Vladimir Putin, we tend to think of him as kind of the recoming of Joseph Stalin, but he's not. He's really just Russia. He's not that powerful himself. He's just Russia's most important power broker. And he rose to power playing all these factions off one another. When Anatoly Serdyukov was forced out as defense minister, Putin was looking for somebody that could take the Ministry of Defense, and he, he needed to know it was somebody that absolutely would not turn the institution against him or the Kremlin. Uh, and so he chose Sergei Shoigu. Sergei Shoigu was a leading man in the United Russia Party. Um, and he was one of the reasons that Vladimir Putin was able to rise to prime minister and ultimately the presidency. They're close friends, um, so close that they take holidays together and their kids are actually married. I think it's I think it's Putin's daughter and um, Shoigu's son. I think his name is Kirill are actually married. Um, and so, you know, they're grandfathers together. Um, these are not people that will turn against each other. Uh, but as I've said, Shoigu might be the most corrupt individual on planet Earth. Um, he has absolutely used the resources of the Ministry of Defense to enrich himself uh, and to and to buy more and more political influence for himself and for his party. Um, and he certainly put that to the service and use of Vladimir Putin, which is why Putin's tolerated it. Uh, and Valery Grasmov, who we've talked about for some time, uh, was kind of the, the competent military man who was supposed to make things work while Shoigu's corruption ran unabated in the background. And, uh, you know, Valery Grasimov, he's known in Russia as a straight shooter. He's known for being very competent. Um, and he was made, uh, you know, chief of the general staff to kind of keep things running while 
Shoigu did what he did, what he does best. Um, and you you can see now in the way that they're performing in Ukraine, that hasn't worked out very well for them at all. Um, and you know, we, uh, Grasimov is revealing himself to be somewhat sycophantic. He only delivers the information that makes him look good to the Kremlin. Um, he only wants to deliver good news. Uh, he's not he's not an empirical decision maker in the same way that uh, you know, uh, let's say Suvorovikin, you know, the uh, or Sorovikin was the the utterly ruthless ground forces commander in Syria. Um, well, Suvorovikin might be ruthless, but he he looks at what's happening and he can make he can look at the information and make real judgments about what's happening and adapt his strategy to the battlefield. He's, he understands the war he's in. Grasimov isn't trying to understand the war. He's trying to tell the Kremlin that the war is going fine, whether or not it really is. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you about these people is because, uh, Prigozhin, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the, the, uh, the, let's say the the owner and general manager of Wagner, uh, he's been trying to promote the use of Wagner more and more in the Russo-Ukrainian war. And as a rival institution to the Ministry of Defense, uh, the Ministry of Defense started denying him resources. They started, you know, they, they started getting into these little conflicts with each other. When he conducted that insurrection, what he was trying to do was force the Kremlin to side with his faction and to exile Shoigu. Um, I don't think he thought it out very well. I'm sure he started out imagining himself as a Julius Caesar. He's not nearly that competent. Um, he does run a you know a sophisticated institution, but you know who is Julius Caesar? Um, he started out with something around 8,000 troops that he pulled from uh, uh, from eastern Ukraine, and they seized Rostov-on-Don, which is the location of the Russian Southern Military District headquarters. They seized the city, and he left maybe about half of that there to set up roadblocks and maintain a garrison. He thought he was going to be able to capture Gerasimov and Shoigu while they were visiting, and the FSB apparently had uh, had Wagner penetrated inside out and every which way through. Uh, the reason he got close was because, it, as far as I can tell, is because the FSB didn't fully believe what it was that they were seeing. They really didn't think anybody could be that stupid. Um, and so when it happened, they kind of watched it happen in slow motion. Like, is this is this really a thing? Like, are we, are we, are they doing this really? Um, everyone that he wanted to capture from the Southern military district escaped. Uh, and so he rolled the dice again and he took about half the force that he rolled into Rostov on Don and he tried a rapid dash North to Moscow. Uh, I, th I think we can loosely estimate that he might've had something between two and 4,000 troops for that mad dash they packed light, um, and he this convoy that dashed north, there were pieces of it that got within maybe 60 miles of Moscow. The bulk of it made it about halfway. And suddenly these units were getting strafed by helicopters, uh, and they actually brought some surface-to-air missiles with them, and so they actually shot some helicopters down. And uh, But they realized that... It, what or what Pergozin had expected was that 
the Russian ground forces would join him. He thought that if he, you know, he thought that if he lit the fuse, uh, there would be a popular revolt in the military against current leadership, uh, and they would get somebody that would handle the war better. And nobody, and it, it's shocking that nobody joined him, but he realized that he had maybe a single, a light brigade, or maybe a couple of very well-armed battalions, and he was going to try to use that to seize Moscow, which is like 13 million people. That's not even enough to seize the political district of Moscow. Um, and he realized exactly how alone he was. And so he let um, uh, Lukashenko from Belarus negotiate with him and talk him down. Um, and uh, Vladimir Putin was already on a plane to St. Petersburg. So there was no chance that he was going to get Putin. Um and of course, uh, you know, the moment that the moment that he was vulnerable, uh, that he had a, had a very unfortunate plane crash. We think it was a surface to air missile, but, you know, it could have been a bomb. There's a there's a dozen ways they could have done it, uh, but they knocked him off. And if he was stupid enough to continue to mouth off on social media and he thought that they were going to let him escape to Africa. And if he could just get down there to his guys, he was going to be safe and nothing was going to happen to him. And uh, he really he really misread the room a few times there. Um, the Russians wanted to disband Wagner. And so one of the first things that they did was say, hey, look, we got to get Wagner and literally anybody that was loyal to Pergozin out of the Ukrainian theater and away from Don, uh, away from the southern military district headquarters. So they started sending all these people to Belarus. Then they started realizing that, hey, these are actually, you know, some of these are actually pretty competent fighting units. Um, we don't just want to remove them all. And if we do, we want to be careful about how we do it. So they suddenly started coming back. And uh, Moscow has insisted on a change of leadership in a lot of the units in Wagner. Uh, but Wagner is, they're largely operating in Ukraine just as they were before the insurrection because Russia can't really do without them abroad. Uh, a lot of their operational commanders were called to come back to Moscow. And then they were informed in Moscow that you're never, you're never going to get a passport to go abroad again. You're too close to Pergozin. You're going to stay here where the FSB can watch you. Um, Sorovikin uh, was the deputy commander uh, at the time of the insurrection and he actually maintained some fairly close contacts to Pergozin. Uh, we don't really know if he participated or not. Uh, we do know that the Kremlin decided he was way too close to it. And Pergozin spoke way too fondly of Sorovikin uh, on social media. So he was removed from command and he's living under house arrest, uh, which means that their one empirically minded commander is no longer making decisions in theater. So is Wagner effectively under the control of the Russian military, or is it still kind of semi or independent? It's still semi-independent, um, but yes, it is. It's much more under the control of Moscow than it was. Um, but it, it's still acting much as an unofficial branch of the Russian military. So, with hybrid warfare and the war in uh, Ukraine, the current one that started in uh, 2022. What's been the impact uh, on hybrid warfare uh, strategy uh, with the war in Ukraine that we can tell thus far? Uh, well, there's a couple of really unique things about this. 
first off, I, th I think the current war in Ukraine is an example of what happens when a hybrid war fails, when they fail to properly execute what was supposed to be a hybrid war. Um, and this is kind of the same thing as the insurgency in Donbass, where they had to introduce conventional ground forces, which became a World, one, World War One style slogging match. And that's the same thing that happened here. Um, the Russians, uh, the GRU was put on the outs uh, as an intelligence agency um, because they tried to assassinate a, a turncoat that was living in Salisbury in the UK. Um, his name was, uh, it's coming to me, his, he and his daughter, they both tried to assassinate by smearing a Novichuk nerve agent on his doorknob. Uh, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on his name. Anyway, uh, that was in 2018. And uh, this was such an egregious red line violation of diplomatic norms, even nerve agent on foreign soil. Uh, MI5 over in the UK had everything. There were two GRU agents that basically got out of a plane at London Heathrow Airport, took a train over, reconned his house, went back for the, to the hotel for the night, and then came the next day, hit this guy's door, and then they were on a plane to Moscow within three hours. Uh, or on a plane to St. Petersburg within three hours. Uh, and MI5 had them. They had their identities. They had their cover identities. They had their full careers uh, in the GRU. One of them was actually, uh, he'd won Russia's highest military honor as a hero of the Russian Federation. Um, and so when Moscow was confronted with the evidence, they basically just said, no, these aren't our guys. You're, you're just persecuting Russians abroad, you jerks. Uh, and so... The Europeans expelled 150 career foreign service and intelligence operatives from each of their respective in embassies across Europe. So 150 highly trained intelligence operatives that are working abroad under official diplomatic immunity are suddenly removed from Europe, plus a certain number from the United States and a massive show of solidarity with the United Kingdom. The collective loss of diplomatic standing and intelligence that Russia lost from that stupid blunder was incalculable. And uh, uh, so Vladimir Putin called in the director of the GRU in September for an intense dressing down, and he was dead by the end of October or maybe early November. Um, he He's supposed to have collapsed at home from stress. We we don't really know if that stress might have been a bullet behind the ear or what. We don't really know. Uh, but since then, it doesn't look like the GRU has been able to bring anybody of in of influence in Moscow information. And because of that, uh, the the FSB was given the lead role of planning the 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 Russian invasion of Ukraine. And the FSB, is, it's first off, as an institution, it's not designed for that. Um, the people that that work in the FSB are not really clear on the kind of information that the general staff need to plan that kind of an intervention. Uh, and it's gone very poorly. Uh, the they told the Kremlin first off that uh, they would be you know, they would be welcomed as liberators. That Ukraine was very pro-Russian, and that the only thing the only people in Ukraine that were really against Russia were the American puppets or the Western puppets in uh, Kiev. And if they could just decapitate it, um, you know, everyone in Ukraine would just 
you know, they would be uh, happy to come back into Russian arms. They planned for a campaign that was going to last about 10 days. And they did a lot of the little hybrid, uh, you know, tactics in terms of preparing, you know, the battle space with propaganda um, and using, uh, you know, let's say very bellicose rhetoric and, and uh, nuclear saber rattling to, to uh, dissuade, uh, you know, uh, uh, Western, uh, you know, Western powers from backing the Ukrainians. Um, they made a very good show of force. Uh, they actually even they they issued an ultimatum, but it wasn't to Ukraine. It was actually to NATO, listing out their demands. Uh, and then the order was given to go. And what we discovered as Western observers was that the Kremlin had made that decision uh, in an information vacuum, and they, they had tried so hard at creating information security that they had not really distributed their intent to all of the different subordinate officers in unit. They had done a force buildup of over 200,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. This is the full expeditionary potential of the Russian armed forces. Most of those units had been sent to Ukraine, uh, to the Ukrainian border, uh, whether they were located on the North Ukrainian border with Belarus or whether it was in Donbass or whether it was in Crimea uh, they had been sent there um, to let them know that they were going to project influence. They were going to conduct exercises and show Russian power. Um, and that's what they thought they were there for was a massive field exercise. There are hundreds of stories of Russian paratroopers who were not told that they were going to war to take over Ukraine until they were actually on the plane and they were getting ready to drop into a combat zone. And then they were told, hey, like, this is a real war, not an exercise. And the, the, that, that would have shocked me <laughs> if I were a paratrooper. Um, so this was very, this was meant to be a hybrid war, but it was executed very ham-fistedly. And one of the primary reasons was that the GRU doesn't appear to have been involved at the level that it should have. Um, you didn't see any real preparatory activity done by, you know, the Spetsnaz units. Um, there doesn't appear to have been a large number of, uh, you know, uh, GRU operatives and, and Spetsnaz units that were doing incursions across the border uh, and kind of, uh, you know, um, mapping out the campaign itself and uh, and building, you know, let's say local assets, um, you know, to, to facilitate the 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 advancement of Russian ground forces when the green light was given. Um, and then of course they had these, uh, they had a couple of what we, I guess you call false flag operations where they tried to, I mean, they literally went and got some corpses from a morgue and then they tried to set up this fake war crime where, you know, these brutal Ukrainian nationalists had slaughtered some helpless ethnic Russians in Ukraine to kind of justify the intervention. Um, and this was, uh, I mean, this was captured and, and, and flagged by Western media very quickly. Um, uh, so, you know, as a, as a hybrid war, they absolutely intended it to be, uh, but the FSB is not the institution that does that, or certainly not the institution that does that well. Um, and it appears to be that the GRU was not really allowed to participate. Now, how should NATO deal with Russia and its strategy of 
hybrid warfare in in your own personal view especially with the research you did for this book uh, uh so how should russia deal how should we deal with russian hybrid warfare as a practice yes well the devil's always in the details um the the general the general advice i could offer global policymakers in dealing with hybrid warfare is that you have to you have to confront it immediately directly and decisively um it, hybrid warfare relies on ambiguity you're not really sure what's happening so let's not do anything rash to throw fuel on the fire so to speak uh and that that is the lethal decision calculus that allows hybrid warfare the the critical extra moments that it needs to really move up uh you know forces that kind of entrench gains um general mattis or you know, uh, he was secretary of defense mattis at the time probably showed one of the better responses to hybrid tactics that i've seen uh so the the at daryl el zor um, in Syria, there's a there's an oil platform, and there were a number of elite U.S. special operations units that were that were at that platform. Uh, they were in the region to coordinate with uh, you know regional partners, uh, largely in the war on ISIS. And there was a delineating line in Syria uh, where we told the Russians, "Hey, look, you're conducting combat operations; we're conducting op- combat operations." you stay on your side of the Euphrates river and we'll stay on ours and no one has to get hurt. We'll just stay away from each other. And this massive armored uh, assault started mustering itself on the other side of the Euphrates. um, And it was clearly going to maneuver on this oil platform. And uh, uh, we uh, apparently, uh, you know, leaders watched that, that unit build up for some time. Uh, and General Mattis, or excuse me, Secretary Mattis, ordered that uh, that uh, uh, the units on the ground be able to have racked and stacked air air assets available to just blow that armored uh, that armored assault to hell um, the moment it crossed the Euphrates. And then he actually got on a deconfliction line with Valery Grasimov, and he said, "Hey, look, uh, you know these uh, you know these guys are." Uh, are clearly yours, um, you know, and, and they're, it looks like they're going to attack us. They're going to come across the Euphrates and attack us and grasp them off. He said, no, they're not Russian. Um, the New York Times reported on this pretty extensively. Uh, the uh, the Grasimov insisted they were not Russian, um, which, of course, we knew was false because uh, we can hear people speaking Russian and, and the local radio comms. Um, and so General Mattis just said, OK, well, if they're if they're not Russian, then, um, you know, they're all going to die the moment they cross the Euphrates. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Um, they tried to maneuver on Zero Zor, uh, and they were pounded and pounded and pounded by airstrike after airstrike after airstrike. Uh, and uh, I think the, the New York Times reported that at least 200 Wagner operatives had died in that assault. Um, <laughs> it's ruthless. It's brutal. Uh, but it is, it seems to be the recipe. Uh, what the Russians were hoping for in that incident was that American civilian leadership would be indecisive in authorizing units on the ground to actually fight back against, against operatives that were obviously Russian and they were that civilian leaders would be so worried that they would create an international incident. 
excuse me, my voice is uh, my voice is fighting me here. So, but General, uh, you know, um, Mattis, uh, he was decisive, and he gave them the resources to immediately confront the threat, and that's exactly what the units on the ground did, and that's exactly what all those air assets were put in the theater to do, and it worked. Well, this has been a very uh, fascinating uh, discussion. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, maybe touch on anything we didn't get to in the book in this discussion? Uh, I think a really interesting di dimension about hybrid warfare, uh, I, I think a really interesting dimension is is the role that the, uh, that the Russian uh, nuclear arsenal plays in the background. Um, nuclear saber rattling is something that the Russians have always done. A really cruel thing. I mean, this is, you know, nuclear war is not something to joke about in any sense. Um, but uh, Vladimir Putin makes a nasty habit of reminding us that they are a nuclear power uh, and they don't want us interfering in their neighborhood, so to speak. And, you know, if anybody, uh, you know, thinks that they can challenge my army in Ukraine and, you know, they should be reminded that there are real consequences. Um, this is something that Matthew Ridgway was calling out all the way back in the 1950s that, uh, or in the 19, the late 1940s, that in a nuclear armed world, great powers do not risk, uh, do not want to risk ever going to war with one another because the risk of nuclear exchange is too high. Um, and if I were, this is one of the reasons that I feel that, uh, you know, uh, policymakers in the United States and Europe need to do a better job of, of communicating to the American public about why Ukraine and support for Ukraine is actually in our interest. And you, you hear people ask questions, uh, you know, like, what, you know, do we want to, do we want to go to war with Russia? We're toying with going to war with Russia if we support Ukraine. Um, or we're, uh, you know, gosh, you know, this is we're risking nuclear war and, and you can hear populist voices asking those questions. And and I think, first off, uh, it's important to recognize the legitimacy of those questions. Um, those are questions that need answering. Um, policymakers need to help people understand how it is that the decisions that we're making in our institutions are actually in the national interest. Um but the reason support in Ukraine is in our national interest is because it keeps the Russian southern military district from having an outpost that's right on the border with NATO allies like Romania and Poland. We already have a problem in that the Baltic states, you know, Latvia, Lithuania uh, and uh, Estonia, Estonia. Thank you. Uh, you know, they're you know, they're they're bundled up, you know, with Kaliningrad up there on the Baltic Sea. Uh, and but I mean, Poland is vehemently anti-Russian and, and, you know, who can blame them? You know, they after, you know, uh, you know, spending the 1940s getting exterminated by the Germans, they then endured 40 years of slavery under communism and they will never relinquish their national identity to a foreign power again. And uh, but, you know, it it only takes somebody in Moscow reading that Poland might be weak in this moment, or maybe NATO is weak in this moment, 
maybe we could try something to try to extend our borders a little bit further to Poland. It's in keeping with the Russian grand strategy that's they've been pursuing for the last several hundred years. And if that decision calculus was ever made that, hey, look, they kind of look weak now and there's an opportunity that we could be had here. And then little green men started showing up in a place like Warsaw or, or Romania. Um, that is the that is the pathway to a real war with Russia. Um, that is the pathway to a general nuclear exchange. And keeping, uh, you know, keeping Russia at arm's length, um, you know, with a buffer like Ukraine in place is is an enormous value uh, to the uh, to the NATO alliance and to the United States. And so if I were to advise policymakers, it would be that they need to they need to communicate candidly with the American public, especially about why these things are important um, and do a little bit less shame on you, you know, kind of finger wagging. Um, and a little bit less, there's this very simplistic narrative of, of who's good and who's bad in this war. And uh, they need to focus a little bit more on the geopolitics and explain to us what the real decision, what the real decision calculus is. And I think, uh, I think that would go a long way in terms of, of creating a general public understanding for, for foreign policy. And also make it a little harder for hybrid warfare to even have an effect uh, on our policies, right? Yes, that's absolutely the case. I think where where hybrid warfare and foreign influence in general is generally um, more potent is is in places where the political establishment does a very poor job of communicating with the public and and uh, uh, let's say where, uh, where the public itself tends to have a very poor buy-in into the political establishment. Um, and uh, you know, the better, the better that those kind of uh, civil political relations can be, uh, can be, uh, let's say, reinforced. Uh, the, so much the better for the country. Well, we always like to end our interviews by asking our guests, uh, "What are you working on now?" <sighs> what am I working on now? I have, I don't know. I'm, I'm collecting ideas uh, for a, a couple of new, a couple of new book ideas. Um, I've, I've been very interested for some time in comparing, uh, the, the, the underlying, um, let's say, uh, enlightenment, it's not even the right word, not enlightenment. Let's say the, the under my, the underlying, um, capacity to reinvent the world that was on display in the French revolution, um, to the uh, to the desire to redefine and reinvent the world uh, uh, shown in the Nazi Party during World War II, and I, I think there are, I think that there are parallels um, and links to those things that are in human nature um, that that bring out human cruelty, um, and when it's done at scale, it can be it can lead to some real atrocities, um, and that would be a very It'd be a very interesting thing to explore because we tend to so we tend to associate one with freedom and and uh, you know maybe Western liberalism and and the other is obviously uh, you know totalitarianism and it's associated with uh, uh, fascism. Um, but I think it I think at the core of both uh, both events in history 
is a Procrustean thesis that I have the right to reinvent the world the way I see fit. And it's up to, you know, it's up to others to fit my vision. And uh, that, that has a, an enormous capacity to bring out human cruelty. Wow. That's a very interesting uh, subject matter. Maybe when you finish that project, we could have you back on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what, it could be a little bit, um, but uh, it's something I'm eagerly exploring and I'm trying to find, uh, I'm trying to find a basis of research materials. Well, uh, Curtis L. Fox, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. 